0: Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast all about early-stage web developers and the mentors and teachers that helped them along the way. Hey, Chris. Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast.
1: Hey, man. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's good to be on here.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. I know you a long time. (laughs) We knew of each other, I think, for a very long time, and then we... Finally met, I think, when you started at Mozilla. Was that was that it?
1: I think so. It was 2013, although I seem to remember that we were talking about web standards and JavaScript and stuff way back when I worked at Opera. Because if you yes. recall, when we did the uh, learning area on MDN, um, that was pretty much the kind of the next step. Um, from my original educational project, which was the Open the Web Standards Curriculum at Opera, and I got you to write some content for that back in about 2008 or 2009 or something. So you know, it's been a wow. very long time. And, uh,
0: <laughs> it has.
1: I think the uh, the the number of grey hairs in our beards are testimony to uh, you know all of the blood, sweat, <laughs> and tears that we've poured into this industry
0: yeah that's for sure that's for sure but it's still a good i think it's still a good industry to be in with all the problems that it has for sure so to get us started um tell us about who is chris mills what you've been up to what got you to where you are today and like maybe a little bit of looking forward as well
1: okay um so like like all of the best people in the open standards community I didn't do any kind of formal education in development or programming or computer science or anything like that um I was always super interested in technology from when I was really young. I do remember um doing my first bits of programming on a zx spectrum forty eight plus back in probably the late eighties or something um and that was good fun um although I do remember like the sheer amount of lines you had to write just to like create like a an eight by eight square you know, an eight by eight pixel character on the screen and moving it was really, really challenging. And, you know, you didn't have like clever things like events and moving in terms of mouse cursors and things back in those days. But anyway, um, this this was not intended to be one of those geekier than thou conversations. Um, um, But yeah, so at school, I always loved science. And I ended up doing a degree in biochemistry. And uh, just towards the end of that, I started getting really interested in something called bioinformatics, which is uh, the study of atoms and molecules and other such things with the help of computers. So we used to download these great big data files off this database in Switzerland, um, which were like the exact... um, structural information for different molecules and then you used to have a local program which would actually render that to show you like a typical kind of you know ball and socket diagram and you could do things like you could go okay well if I change this amino acid in that protein chain it's got different you know attraction and it's got different positive and negative attraction values so how does that change the way that the whole protein folds up and structures itself um so stuff like that was quite fun and geeky and interesting um but yeah didn't really have much luck getting a job in uh, uh like chemi- chemistry or biomedical science type stuff so i decided to go for a uh a job at a book publishers instead. And it was uh rocks press. I don't know if you remember those folks, but back in the day doing books about ASP mm-hmm. and ASP.net and stuff. It was those red book covers yeah. with the really ugly author faces all over the covers. Uh, uh, but yeah, that was uh that was the place I ended up and did a bunch of books about, uh, about web standards and about all sorts of stuff. It was there that I met Bruce Lawson, who has been one of my long-standing partners in crime in the uh, open standards industry. And we started the, uh, Glasshouse imprint which was one of the first uh publishing imprints dedicated to open standards books um and then around 2003 or so this is um rocks press went horribly bankrupt and i ended up working for these nice folks called a press over in california and uh, it was there that i ended up becoming hmm. managing editor of friends of ed i don't know if you remember friends of ed at all but they were um i do publisher. i do yeah um, originally did books about Flash and Photoshop, but we kind of turned it into turned that around and turned it into a uh, an Open Standards book publisher. So, did a whole bunch of books on HTML and CSS and DOM scripting stuff. We we published Jeremy Keith's first book on uh, DOM scripting and uh, a number of other great titles. Um, but about that time, it, I felt it was time to move past the publishing industry, and uh, my first proper job in. Web standard stuff was a uh, opera, um, and I do miss those days back with uh, folks like Bruce and Patrick Lauker and Henny Swan and Dan Davis doing uh, open evangelism. It was an interesting time that because uh, opera never really had much of a market share, but we seemed to have a disproportionately large voice in terms of doing standard stuff. Um, and then after a good few years there, um, it was time to go to Mozilla and uh, work on MDN, which is where it started to get really interesting, I think. Uh, and, uh, yeah, at that point, I spent eight years working on MDN, uh, doing lots of content on lots of different web APIs and CSS stuff. Um after a while, it felt like time to move on. This is getting really boring, isn't it? Um, and uh, Not at all, not at all. Fast forward a couple of years, and uh, yeah, I ended up at the point where I wanted to start something new again after doing a couple of years at Okta, doing identity and access management documentation. And at this point, uh, I've started up my own company called Mills Docs Limited, and uh, I'm now an independent um documentation writer specializing in open standards doing as much of that good stuff as I can and funnily enough one of my first clients is Google who have got me back writing stuff on MDN again so it's kind of a bit of a kind of a weird boomerang situation but I'm (laughs) very happy with where I've ended up because also it means I get to talk to nice people like yourself a bit more often so yeah it feels like a good place to be right now.
0: That's amazing that's a Great story, and I a lot of that stuff I have no idea about. That's quite the leap from bioinformatics and protein folding to book publishing. Did that kind of just, like, happen? Was it intentional? Was there an interest in that always?
1: So, when I was at university, I can remember sitting there messing about on things like GeoCities and MySpace playing with HTML and CSS stuff, Um but I never really had it in mind that I'd do that stuff for a living. It was more a case of when I left university and went, oh, crap, I need to get a job now. The government aren't paying me to sit around in my student flats any- flat anymore. Um I thought what the hell am I going to do? So I looked around, I applied for a few jobs doing biochemistry related stuff and realized actually it's really hard to get a job around here because I don't have a PhD. So I went, ah, oh, what the hell else am I going to do? And then I think by chance I saw an advert saying, you know, trainee technical editors wanted to work on books about programming and HTML and stuff. And I thought, oh, I know what HTML stands for, so I might be in with a shot for that job. And it was cool because where is the Kind of science bodies that I tried to get jobs with um in stuff related to my degree were kind of very formal you know had to go in there in a suit and be quizzed by lots of panels of scientists. This was a much more chilled out relaxing kind of outlook like i I can remember when I got my interview at Rocks Press being told turn up in casual clothes and i was thinking whoa is that like a trap am i going to turn up and they're going to be like hey you you're not wearing a suit screw you man um but i turned it up I, I i turned up wearing you know ripped jeans and a sepultura t-shirt and uh got on very well with them and they were like hey this guy seems all right we'll give him a job um so yeah it was it was pretty much partially an accident and partially just like hey this sounds cool let's try this out and it turned out being a really good direction to go in so
0: that's brilliant yeah it is it's it is one of the things I also enjoy about tech is that it it is for the most part um, i i don't know i've i fit more with the people in tech i think it's what it boils down to i i would I wouldn't have made it in a corporate like wearing a suit kind of thing like even in school. I constantly got into trouble because I wasn't wearing a tie, but I was wearing a Jersey and it's like, you have to wear the two together. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm not going to wear a tie. Um, so yeah, the fact that I don't have to wear a tie and a suit to do my job, I think is a good thing. But you mentioned that, um, that you have now gone the independent route and started mills docs, which by the way, I love the name. And, um, I'm always super excited when I hear people doing this. It, it's very hard. It's scary and all these things. But I think the potential for entrepreneurship and for startups and these kinds of things to create opportunity for others down the line is what excites me about it. Um, and that is why I'm doing what I'm doing with, with my company. Why I decided, like, I have this company name that kind of started out as a, as a way to be able to keep working for Mozilla. But then I was like, well, wait a minute. Maybe I should try and do something with this. Um, I've built up so many connections with so many people. Um, I've been privileged to be able to do that through the work I did or still do at Mozilla. Um, And I have this burning passion for open web, open standards, accessibility, all this stuff, and sharing my knowledge and stuff with other people. So I was like, can I somehow take all these things and build a company around it? And I've had some failed attempts, but I think it's because I, I was trying to do I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. So what I wanted to do and what I was doing, they were kind of at odds with each other. But I think I found my I think I found my way finally um, during the course of this year. But enough about me. I'm curious about what made you decide to take this leap of faith and what is your hopes for Millstocks?
1: so it's something i've wanted to do for at least a decade but i've always kind of had the excuses and the fears coming up in the back of my mind you know it's like the main fear of course is am I still going to be able to find work to pay my mortgage and feed my family? Or are we going to end up, you know, painting a colourful cardboard box on the side of the road in three months? Um, and it's pretty much purely that fear that kept me from doing it for the longest, longest time. And looking back on it, you know, I I, I keep, I've, I've said to my wife a couple of times, you know, um, I wish I'd done this years ago because it seems great. And she's just like, but you keep saying that, but you can't say that, you know, because the right time arrives and it's the right time you can't sort of say oh well the right time would have been 10 years ago because it obviously wasn't because you didn't do it Um, but I suppose like on that note I think the main thing to try and do is to try and make sure that you've got at least a couple of months of money built up so that if everything does go wrong, you can still pay the bills and things just for a little while while you're figuring it figuring it out. Um, the other option, which I also know that some people have done in the past, is pretty much you know work two jobs until you get your own business like going enough and buoyant enough to be able to then just jack in your regular day job. Um, I remember talking to some, talking to some folks like Mark Bolton a long time ago about that and being really fascinated by, you know, the idea of how you can have enough tenacity to survive two jobs, you know, like working your day job and then like working your own company through the evening and into the small hours to try and, I think, I think that's a a great kind of vision and it's, i'm i'm really impressed if anyone that can do that but i think really i'm just too old and knackered to do that now you know i'm'm I'm, I'm getting old i i just can't cope with working 16 hours a day anymore although i have done it from time to time in the past when there's been crunch periods don't get me wrong we all have but it's not a sustainable sensible way to try and live your life um at any age really yeah um mm-hmm. i think the next thing to think about really is that the best time really is when you can kind of Uh, Again, we have advantages, you know. We have immense privilege in the opportunities we've had for a whole number of reasons, and but I think anyone can build up a number of connections, regardless of what walk walk of life you come from. Um, you just have to have been around for a while, had a little bit of luck, met some good people. But really, the best way to do that is to go out there, be happy and friendly and helpful, and just be positive. Um and kind in as many situations as you can, because that kind of thing really does get paid back to you in droves. Um, And then, you know, once you've done enough of that stuff for a few years, you'll then start to see opportunities. You know, I think, I think that's a one thing, regardless of how much crap that life throws your way, just never stop being kind and, um, and empathic and, helping others, because I really think that stuff will come back eventually, even if it doesn't seem like it sometimes. Um, you know, yeah. I, I sit here saying that, but I'm white and male and incredibly privileged. Um, but it's not as if I haven't worked hard to get where I am. You know, I've done a ton of work mm-hmm. for a very mm-hmm. long time. And I think that stuff has resulted in me eventually being in a situation where I have enough contacts at that a couple of really good contracts were brought up um, through the contacts I had that allowed me to think, hell, this stuff will be what I need to last me at least a year or so, you know. Um, yeah. And this yeah. is the time that the time is now right to start my own company. So that's that's kind of how I eventually arrived at that. It wasn't as if it was a great plan for a long time, but just in, a, in about maybe a six month period, I kind of went from going, well, I feel like I want to move on from my current job a couple of jobs that I applied for didn't really work out for a couple of reasons. And then from that, I kind of went, well, there's the combination of that and a couple of opportunities that are looking likely. And let's just take that chance and jump kind of thing. It always feels frightening, but you know, I'd like to stress to anybody listening that once you've done it, provided that you're hardworking and you've got integrity and you've got a few contacts and you've just got that discipline to really work hard to begin with and really sort of get all of that stuff built up that you need to make a good go of it, I think you should succeed. And after a few months, you'll be sitting there like me thinking, why the heck didn't I do this like years ago? It feels good. I mean, it particularly feels good to hardly attend any meetings anymore and to be your own (laughs) boss and to really be able to just decide what you want to work on all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think the other thing for me as well is that, you know, I did a whole bunch of management in my employed career, but I kind of felt like I wanted to take a bit of a rest from that and just sort of get back to individual contribution again. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think one of, one of, one of the key issues behind management is just making sure that you understand the problems that all of your direct reports are going through and be able to understand Mm -hmm. what they're doing. And, To do that, really, you have to have a bunch of experience in actually doing the job yourself. But I started to feel like I was getting a bit too far away from the job itself, and I wanted to get back to that.
0: But Mm -hmm. yeah, at the end
1: of the day, I just love discussing and writing great documentation. That's what I'm here for. And it feels great to have got back to a much purer form of that. Um, The other thing that you asked about was future plans. Um, I think what i really want to do is you know i'm working hard for the first year or so just to build up some great connections and to do some great work and also you know just as importantly to build up a bit of cash in the company so that i can start to then chill out a bit after that um but i think my longer term plans are i want to get to the point where i don't have to work quite as much every week so i can hopefully start to spend some time teaching some people, mentoring some people, and start to give back to the community that way. Uh, One thing that I've always found a bit sad in the companies that I've worked for are, you know, you get a lot of great people, you get some companies doing some great work, but there rarely seems to be that much time for mentorships and to actually get juniors on board and skill them up and help with that kind of thing. Companies always seem to want, stuff done really quickly so they always hire really experienced people and pay them loads of money to do the work really fast but it'd be great just to chill out a bit and just take that sort of more chilled out longer term view of you know let's do this a little bit more slowly but actually skill up some people into the bargain that's really what I want to head towards eventually
0: yeah that's great I love that so um when I get somebody on the podcast I spend some time like researching on them as much as i can to find topics that i know they might might be interested in talking about or um things that i didn't know and i'd like to learn more about stuff like that you made it really easy because you sent out a tweet while back um in response to bruce lawson i think it was and it's like the question was what can you talk about with any like um any heads up that you're going to have to talk. And you posted a couple of topics that you can talk about without being uh, prompted. So I want to dig into some of those topics. Um, the first one I find particularly interesting because I think people don't really know what technical writing is. And I think there's more people that would actually find it super interesting and we love doing that but because i don't know what it is they might think that oh no these are like people who've gone and done doctorates and phd's on how a computer functions like i will never be able to do that so can you from your perspective like break down what is technical writing and what what does somebody need if they are thinking like okay this is starting to sound interesting to me what is like kind of a what's the road do you follow to becoming a technical writer?
1: Ooh, that is a really interesting question. I mean, that could be a very short or a very long answer. I suspect we haven't got time here to make it a really long answer. So I'll I'll try and get it somewhere in the middle. So I guess my short to medium length answer would be that I think with technical writing, um, there's two main parts to it. One of which is investigation and research. That's one thing that you've got to have an aptitude for. And the other thing is being able to break down complex subjects and explain them clearly to people to help them understand them. So that's really the two sides of the story. So with everything that you need to write some documentation about, you first need to do a bunch of research. You need to go, okay, For a start, what's the target audience here? What's the target audience for the technology or the product that I'm about to write something concerning? Um, You know, is it a developer? Is it a DevOps person? Is it a designer? Is it a variety of different people? Um, Is it maybe even someone that's not very technical, someone who has no technical knowledge and wants to sort of get started in this particular technology or field? Um, there's also other things to consider such as um, what is the prerequisite knowledge is this for complete beginners or is it for advanced level people who just want to get better at stuff and they already know the basics Um, what are the other technologies that you need to already know before you start using this particular thing that you're writing about so there's all of that stuff Um, when you've got that figured out um, it's usually a good idea to sit there and put, your, put yourself in the mindset of that person that you're writing this document. Think to yourself, okay, what are the questions they're going to have about this thing I'm writing about? What is it they're, that they're going to want to know? Um, at that point, you can start to think about what to write about the actual technology, and you've got to scope the work carefully as you do with any task that you're doing whether you're a developer or a bricklayer or a plumber or whatever um think to yourself mm-hmm. okay so i could write all of this stuff about this technology but what do i actually need to do first as as with any complex task it's a good idea to break it down into different phases to go okay you know first of all i'm going to write down i'm going to i'm going to create just the quick start for this particular technology, just the one or two articles that helps someone get into it in ten minutes flat, then after that I'll start to do further phases to create reference material which explains everything you could possibly want to do and allow you to look up things or other advanced tutorials to write so once you've got the scope of the work, you then need to go and start investigating exactly what do I need to put into each of these documents that I'm going to write and usually this involves a lot of kind of hard self-reflection where you realize how little you actually know about this stuff versus what you thought you knew about it. That's one of the main (laughs) reckonings to come up against and you just have to go through and go, you know, okay. um, I'll give you an example. So today I was attempting to create a load of documentation about some new options to do of the screen capture API um, on MDN and, I sat there and I read through loads of blog posts to help me just to understand the API in the first place. Cause I'm not hugely familiar about hugely familiar with it. Um, then I went through and looked through the Google Chrome source code to try and figure out exactly which bits of it they implement and exactly which bits they don't and which classes are all of these different pro- properties and options that I'm wanting to write about what, you know, which which classes are they hanging off? What constructor are they involved in? Where do I need to put this documentation on the site? Um, and then another thing I tend to do at this point is that I write myself a great big research document just to record all of that information so that I can then look back on it and go, ah, oh, that's what I need to write about. Um, another thing at this point to do, which I think is a really good idea is, start off by writing one or two paragraphs about each thing that you're trying to document just to make sure you understand what it is that you're writing about because if you can't explain to yourself in a few words what you're going to be writing about you sure as hell uh-huh. won't be able to do that for other people so yeah. i think i'm starting to waffle a bit so i think i'll leave that in terms of the research and investigation part um but then onto the actual writing of this stuff when you're writing um this involves of course a decent amount of aptitude with language whichever language is, is that you're writing documentation in you need to be able to explain things really clearly um a general good rule of thumb is that you need to you need to write so that you're trying to explain this to like you know maybe like a a high school kid or something like that um you know, there's going to be quite a lot mm-hmm. of complex terminology that you're going to need to use, but you should make yeah. sure that you only use the term the complex terminology that you have to use. Make sure you explain to it, explain the stuff you're talking about in as clear language as you possibly can. Uh, don't use jargon unless you absolutely have to. Um, so there's the language part of it. I think also there's the style part of it, you know, you need to make sure that the stuff is grammatically correct in terms of the language you're writing, but you also need to add some style and some fun into it to make it so that not only can it be understood, but it also makes the technology exciting to learn and interesting. It makes people want to actually read the stuff you're writing about. Um, I mean, that comes with practice and comes with quite, you know, a few years of building it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think I'm going to stop there of the writing as well, because I mean, I I really could talk for hours about this stuff. But yeah, really, investigation and writing. Notice that I haven't mentioned programming ability or web development Mm -hmm, ability or anything like that. I think Mm -hmm. really that stuff is all incidental to the stuff that you're going to be documenting. So. Obviously, it really really helps, and you do kind of need to be able to understand the technologies that you're writing about um, mm-hmm. but in a way that's kind of like a background detail, I think to just the first two, which are really the more important focus. so you'll you'll be able to pick up the technologies gradually as you go as you go along. but your focus should mm-hmm. really be the mm-hmm. sort of the passionate the passion to investigate and explain and to teach the stuff that you're, that you want to write about.
0: Yeah. I hope that yeah. answers the so question. So do you think it Yeah, no, it totally did. Um do you think it can be a good way to learn? Like if you not pretend, but if you play the role of a technical writer in your own learning journey. And so as you learn stuff, you write about it in a way that maybe helps you understand it better yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, I think that's another great use of blogging or tweeting as it's kind of become, although, hey, maybe not for much longer. Um, But um, yeah, you know, I think it totally helps. Like I've had, I've talked to loads of people about this. Like I remember talking to Estelle about this, who now works for Open Web Docs, documenting stuff on Mm -hmm. MDN. And she was kind of saying that, you know, before we contracted her originally to work on MDN, she was saying, hell, this is great, you know. I really enjoy playing with technology. I really enjoy writing about it on my blog and explaining it to other people so that they can use it. And it sounds like now you're going to basically pay me for something that I really enjoy doing anyway. And it's kind of like, well, that's totally cool to be to be able to get inroads. But I mean, the, the salient point there is that I think that's basically what her and a lot of other people have done. You know, it's like, well... I want to understand this technology. So rather than just writing a bunch of code examples and messing about with code, which is, let's face it, that's also a great way to learn. You know, Don't just stop there, create a code example, but then also explain how that works in a blog post and it helps you understand it even better. So yeah, I would absolutely agree with that.
0: Cool. Yeah, I agree. I think it's helped me definitely. Um, and it still does. If I learn something new, I often find it good to, after the fact, kind of try and write what I learned um, or how I got to the answer of like, this is the problem I faced. This is how I got there and then fill in the gap. Um, not Not only now do I have an artifact that I can look back at, but I have kind of Prove to myself that I do understand it, actually.
1: I think, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think one problem that does tend to come up from time to time is uh, the kind of scoping of the writing and the examples. So, you know, you can... If you want to document a single property, um, then you can do that. And the code example might just be like a single line of JavaScript But then you've got to think about, well, actually, does that help me use this in the real world? What context do I need to use that in to actually make real use of it in a real application? Mm -hmm. And what scaffolding code has to sit behind it before that's actually effective and useful? And then you've got to kind of play with the scoping and figure out, okay, um, you know, that's just one line of code, but to actually make it useful it's got to sit inside this giant application that does all of this other stuff in the background. But in terms of teaching someone how to use these individual properties, you can't show them like an entire application's worth of code on every page. You've got to kind of structure the examples so that you're making each individual piece understandable um, Mm while still kind of providing that useful real world context and how you're going to use it. So that's a bit of a balance that you need to achieve as you, uh, as you go through technical writing and it's something that you just learn to do as you go forward. You know, there's, there's one, one danger that I see people do a lot in technical writing is too many kitchen sink examples. So too many examples that show you how to do everything when actually you're just trying to show someone how to, how to use one single property. You know, the, the best code examples for technical writing just show how to do one thing well but they also show how show it how to do it in a way that's transferable into the real world
0: yeah yeah i i um i think writing good examples is really a art form um because i oftentimes the the examples you see people use aren't really connected to any real world use case and so it's almost like you're learning something in the abstract and you're so now you kind of understand on a technical level better what this thing is but you still find it a little hard to understand how do i use this to solve an actual problem so i think being able to connect those two things is really important
1: yep no absolutely i think um the second biggest mistake i I always see in uh, code examples for technical writing is when people write a code snippet that's really really clever but really hard to understand you know so it's like fair enough you're a fantastic programmer this thing that I wrote in ten lines you've shown me how to do in two lines but actually my thing is a lot easier for people to understand what's actually happening you know it's like you know when I when I return the value of that property, what object does that return? And then I need to use a method that's that's hanging off of that particular object. And, you know, usually, and and you get some sort of chain like that, and you go, well, actually, even though you could do that with one line, it's often helpful to sort of separate that out into the individual steps across three or four lines, just so that people can actually grok the chain of... The chain of events, that's a terrible term which will uh, be completely misconstrued. The uh, the different happenings that's going from start to finish at that one line, because otherwise it's just too difficult to get it if you've only seen that for the first time.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. So um, I think, well, I don't think I know, because I've heard this many times and experienced it myself, that... Um, documentation is often the what makes the difference between a successful open source project and a failure. Um, And you've been involved in quite a number of open source projects that has really good documentation. For example, WebDocs, MDN WebDocs. What has been some of the takeaways, some of the, the stuff that you've learned that you think is key to running a successful documentation project, be it for an open source project or closed source? doesn't really matter, but more of a focus maybe on the
1: open source side. Okay. Um, I think one of the number one important things is having really, really clear processing guidelines. Because if you don't have clear guidelines, then you just end up with really, really bad inconsistency everywhere. And it's okay if you've only got ten pages, but when you build it up to a behemoth of the sort of size of MDN, you then realize that you've got so many document, so much documentation debt sat there that it's going to be nearly impossible to fix it all. And then it requires some passionate, dedicated people to spend hundreds of hours fixing stuff up, just to get things not even particularly being that much better, but just being consistent. Um, but then again, you know it's not so It's not so obvious what the improvement is when you just fix a small number of those kind of paper, kit, paper cut inconsistency fixes. But then when you start to look at the whole project from a much higher level, you then realise actually this is just improving the quality and the polish of this thing so much that really it starts to become the difference between the project living and dying. Um. So in terms of guidelines this can be things like you know exactly how do we take an image what size does the image need to be does it need to be centered on the page or left aligned um do i need to make sure that i capture it at a high enough resolution so it doesn't start to look really pixely and crappy on high-res screen devices uh all of these kind of things uh well what what kind of language guidelines do we use do we uh Do we have sentence case capitalization on headings? You know, all of this kind of stuff. It's just good to keep that stuff in mind and make sure you try and apply it as consistently as possible. Now, I also mentioned process. So particularly in terms of things like open source projects, process is things like, okay, if I've submitted submitted a pull request, um, who's responsible for reviewing that? How long can I expect to wait for a review? Um, what am I expected to do to make it as easy as possible for other people to review? Um, these kind of things are also very important, you know, and not only is it good to have processing guidelines to make the work better itself and the flow of work better, but it's also great for covering, covering your own back as well. If somebody starts to complain and say, Hey, well, that thing's like that. You can, just t- you can just point to the process doc and say, hey, that's because it's outlined in the process doc or it's outlined in these guidelines mm-hmm. rather than just kind mm-hmm. of making stuff up on the fly every time you get asked that question, which can lead to bad yeah. feeling when people see that you're making inconsistent decisions or doing things mm-hmm. that look mm-hmm. like you're favoring one contributor over another contributor. So I'd say mm-hmm. all of that mm-hmm. stuff is really, really important. Um, it processes also, when you start to get something where you get the number of contributions that you do on mdn web docs and you know speaking to you as the community manager of mdn web docs you know only too well just how much work it is to do that and try and manage the community and manage who's doing what issue who's fixing what problem um you know process is also hugely important for just trying to make sense of an enormous great big volume of issues and pull requests flying at you all the time um So I think those are the two main things, really. Um, In terms of other things that are important to think about for open source projects, um, I think also part of the process, and really this is coming into governance, you need things like code of conduct to make sure that people are treated as fairly as possible and anybody that comes into the community And is a bad apple and starts being unconstructive or or you know god forbid abusive um is dealt with using a firm but fair process to make sure that you can keep positive feeling up um i think also this comes back to mentorship as well you know um as well as making sure that everything's fair for people you also need to make sure that there's good beginners documentation to help people get started but then also people to help mentor people and skill them up so that they can start doing things more autonomously. I think the biggest fear with open source projects is you sit there and you go, okay, there's three or four of us that are really autonomous and are getting loads of stuff done, but if we stop and start spending some time mentoring people instead, that's going to take up all of our time. So how on earth is all of the work going to get done? Mm. It's just going to grind to a halt. Mm. But you need to have a balance, don't you? You need to carry on doing the good stuff, but you also need to spend maybe a little bit of time skilling people up so that you can then start to see the benefits of that later. And then, of course, as people start to move on from that project, you need to make sure that you've still got people to carry on the good work there and it doesn't just grind to a halt.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm yeah so yeah I like, that's good I advice think
1: that's, yeah I think that's the yeah. main stuff no, that I've, I've learned from open source stuff. I think yeah. a lot of, no, those are
0: all very good points.
1: A lot of big more enterprisey companies could really benefit from those kind of open source project philosophies. I've seen too many kind of companies which are doing their documentation for their project on GitHub. But mainly just because you know it's convenient to use something like a static site generator type setup to publish your documentation, but then failing to take advantages of all of the kind of good open source magic that you could get by just opening up that documentation and encouraging outside contributions. You know, if you've got your stuff on GitHub, but you're not allowing external contributions, then hell, what are you doing? You know, it's just it doesn't make any sense not to, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Do you have any like examples of either companies or open source projects that do this really well?
1: Um. Well, um. Aside from the obvious you know, MDN, which is contributed to by loads of companies. Um, I'm just trying to think. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of like a company which is, you know, pretty much a closed source product, but it also takes lots and lots of contributions from the open source community in terms of its documentation Um, Amazon, from what I can tell, seem to be quite good at doing that in terms of AWS documentation. I've got a few friends there and they seem to have quite an active kind of um, contributions from from the community. Um, I'm not so sure if it's worth really mentioning Google and all of the community contributions they get to their docs, because, I mean, that's like an open-source project anyway. You know, if you look at Chromium as an open-source project. Uh, Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm drawing a bit of a blank, I'm afraid. But I'll have have to think about other good examples.
0: Have you looked at how GitHub does their GitHub docs project? Because that's been open-source now since mid-last year, I think.
1: No, no, I've not really looked at that so much.
0: Cool. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know your thoughts on that one. Um, because we have hmm. somebody that we mutually know that works on that project now. Uh, Peter Bengtson. he works at oh, GetUp on the yes. GetUp Docs project. <laughs> so, um, you know, he's taken a lot of the learnings from MDN there, but he's also said that uh, there's also some stuff they do that Web Docs don't, and um, there's actually a, quite a lot of uh cross pollination happening at the moment. Between uh, Web Docs and GitHub, um, to learn from each other, especially now that their Docs project is also open source, and they are they are starting to, they are starting to experience some of the problems that we've already had and sort of kind of solved or are more. Um, used to, or we're almost at a point where we are kind of solving it. Uh, but they know the technology we use much better than what we do, like GitHub itself. So, you know, they can help us again from that perspective. So it's quite interesting um, how that, that kind of relationship is building up and being mutually beneficial.
1: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely great. Like I'd, I'd completely forgotten that Peter had gone over to GitHub, but yeah, I do remember that now. I will have to look into it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting to know what you think. So um, you kind of touched on this when you mentioned stuff like code of conduct and things like this, but um, a slightly harder topic, I guess. Um, challenges facing the tech industry. Like you've been in the tech industry quite, for quite some time. The tech industry has changed, but also stayed the same in many, many respects. You've worked at everything from like big open source kind of companies like Mozilla, but also at Okta now recently. Um, what have you found in your career so far to be like challenges that we just haven't dealt with properly yet? I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating is to learn that of all contributions made to open source, only 13% is women and only 17% from Africa. It seems disproportionate. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on those things
1: it's really hard isn't it you know the the whole um equal opportunities and I stuff is something that i do care about a great deal and i would love to be able to help to fix this problem um but i don't think it's something that can be very easily fixed um yeah. you know we have we have a society that's largely set up so that it advantages men and white people you know let's just you know and that's me speaking as a white male i'm mm-hmm. i'm painfully aware of that but then again at the same time i'm not because i think if you don't suffer from prejudices that come from not being white and male you you don't notice them and you can't even really imagine what effect that has um one thing that i would love to do um going back to the idea of mentorship is deliberately give mentorship opportunities to non-white, non-males, um, just to basically try and give a bit back and to help with this whole issue. Because, you know, the, the the number of times I've heard people complain about, oh, well, you know, it's ridiculous. Like the amount of effort that's expen- expanded on, you know, trying to give opportunities for like, you know, non-whites and non-males haven't they had enough and it's like yeah but actually as white males we get those advantages every day of our lives by default as soon as we wake up without even trying and that's why we can never stop thinking about this stuff and that's why you know in my own small way I want to do as much as I as much as I can as I can about this and really I don't think this is a subject I can say too much more about because I'm painfully aware that as a white male, I don't understand it enough yet, and I don't think I'll ever understand it, perhaps enough. But I can just understand it as much yeah. as I can, being in the position that I am. Yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah. No, I... I. I don't even know if it's. I don't even know if it's got particularly that much better, in the twenty-plus years I've been in the tech industry. <laughs> well, I certainly think it's got a bit better. But at least companies kind of notice it now. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then again. I mean, I was quite impressed with Okta when I worked there, but Okta seemed to be a company that recognises diversity and inclusion challenges, but actually really try and do something about it, rather than just kind of paying lip service to it, you know having having yeah. a lay little yeah. Black Lives Matter sticker in the corner of your site and then doing absolutely nothing about it <laughs> apart from that. You might as well, please, just don't bother. It's just pathetic. But, yeah, Okta did do a lot yeah. more yeah. than your average company in terms of having, like, focus groups for, for women, LGBT people of colour inside the company and really helping them to get advantages um, and get opportunities Um and then they have the whole Octa for Good site as well, which is their donations and philanthropy type movement, which I was quite impressed for, impressed by as well. So yeah, they definitely did more than the default. But I'd like the default just to be more. <laughs> I think that's uh yeah. Yeah. something that's quite a painful truth, really.
0: Yeah, no for sure. No, I agree. I I do think there's there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of action and This is generally a problem that I have with most of these kinds of things, and it plays into politics, but we won't go there. But um, it's always a lot of talk, but when it comes down to doing, doing something constructive about it, then, you know... It just goes quiet and it's like oh okay cool so we just like talking about it but we don't actually want to do anything about it Um, yeah no I I mean I've spoken to a couple of folks um, who've been directly affected by these kinds of things and some of these stories are just terrific it's like you can't believe that this actually happens like here's a person sitting in front of you telling you that this has happened to me but you still just can't can't wrap your head around the fact that stuff like this happens to people like where people are um sexualized and stuff like that just openly in an office setting. And you're like, I don't I don't understand. <laughs> how does this happen? Uh so yeah, it, it is something that I'm also um like uh, it, it I don't know it plays the same kind of role to me as accessibility. Um the accessibility of the products we build but also how accessible we make it to actually enter the industry itself and then um how accessible we make it to get employed um i think that in itself is a struggle and in africa um trying to build your own business is really really hard because i i listened to a talk uh interview with a woman from africa she's from lagos but she so she built a business in africa and then she built a business in the united states and she was talking about the the difference between our experience of these two scenarios and what it boils down to is the system in the U.S. for all the problems the United States have, um, the system is set up for you to succeed, whereas in Africa, the system is set up to see you fail. And that is a hard truth to acknowledge. Me being from Africa myself, I can um, corroborate her experience you're definitely you're fighting constant bureaucracy and red tape to get the most simplest things done. Like, I'm sitting here speaking to you, um, but I'm actually connected to a big battery on the left because our power is currently out and it's going to remain out for the next 30 minutes, it's going to be out for about two hours, and then in four hours from now it's going to happen again because our power grid is just unmaintained and the company running it is completely corrupt. And so, you know these are the things you face so you have to luckily i'm in a position where i can go out and buy that expensive battery to allow me to be able to do this while it's pitch dark around me Um, but not everybody is Um, a lot of people in this country are losing their jobs having to close their companies simply because the system is set up for them to fail Um, and so yeah that that's a it's a very hard thing so for for me from my part that is why stuff like accessibility is so important to me because I know how hard it can be to do the most simplest thing. And if I can do something to make it a little easier for you to do, get something done, then by all means, I think it's my
1: responsibility to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, accessibility is, you know, just from a more, technical perspective is also another thing that's a major issue in the industry you know I think this does have quite a lot of similarities to draw across like another thing I've noticed is just that it seemed to get better for a while um you know with all of the action that um accessibility advocates did through teaching even basic stuff like just writing proper semantic HTML and mm-hmm. actually using a fricking button when you mean to use a button <laughs> and not a stupid yeah. div styled to look like a button. How many times do we have to say it, you know, bang head against brick wall? Um, but it kind of seems to have got slightly worse again of late. And I think this is because yeah. the new generation coming into the industry, a lot of them tend to do it through less organically just kind of like right you know there's i'm I'm not saying this is a terrible thing it's great to give people opportunities to work but the number of college courses and code boot camps and things that are just like well to get a job you just need to learn react because that's the most popular library right now so run you through this quick course to teach you how to build a react app boom you're gone go and get a job and you're like well that's great but what about all of the sort of HTML, CSS and JavaScript knowledge that underpins that, that you really ought to need to know to build a truly accessible, effective application? I mean, Mm -hmm, one mm -hmm. kind of, one anecdote that I can, that that springs to mind is I I was asked by a friend of mine to come in and speak at his company about accessibility basics um, to all of his teams. And there was quite a few people in his teams that were like fairly young, fairly new coders that were building a bunch of React apps. And I thought to myself, is it really useful for me to just walk into here and just give like a 25-minute talk about all of this real basic nuts and bolts accessibility stuff, surely in 2021? Uh, but people were absolutely amazed and astounded by it. And were just like, what, you mean it's actually important to use HTML elements other than div?" what if something's inaccessible it isn't always the designer's fault it's actually down to the code as well and I was just I couldn't believe like this the the sheer lack of knowledge of this whole company about accessibility and yeah it's just weird to me I suppose again you you live inside certain bubbles don't you so things aren't always like that everywhere but at the same time, I was quite shocked just by how little there was in terms of accessibility knowledge there. So I think that's another thing that we need to kind of ramp up again. Yeah, So
0: I agree. I agreed. I just last night watched a video um, where a person was talking about using Vue.js and he was talking about, okay, we're going to create this uh, list of products. And then I was like, okay, cool. And then it's like, a list of nested divs. And I was like, you, you used the word list just now. <laughs> HTML has lists. <laughs> you know, it has different kinds of lists, even. Um, I think we should make this list of products with an unordered list. Maybe, maybe that makes sense. And it helps people with accessibility to know this is a list of five items. That's useful, useful information for them. Um, yeah. So no, I agree. I agree. I, I think it has, it has slipped. Um, but I do see people talking about it. But again, I think it's, again, the thing where we need uh, more than just talk. We need examples out there. Um, We need courses that teach a library like React, like Vue, like Swelt, like whatever is popular, but made by people who care and so who use the proper semantic structure when they show so they're not just like I'm going to show it to make a view app but I'm going to show it to make a view app using the power of the open web I'm going to show you how to use the proper HTML the proper CSS and think about stuff like color contrast and Mm -hmm. um, the, the order of your document and what the outline of your document looks like and all of these good things and by doing that show you that hey guess what More often than not, your application is going to be more performant because you're not going to reinvent the wheel. Don't build a select drop-down in React. Use the one the browser gives you. I know it's not super pretty, but you can style it to some extent, and at least it's accessible to a much much bigger audience, and you're going to have a lot less of a headache trying to maintain your own little select drop-down because you're now having to reinvent things that the browser has already implemented years ago.
1: Yep, amen to that brother. It's um it's a really difficult one though. Like I I've I've done several talks at universities where I've just had some person stand up in the back and utter some immortal words like why not just use native apps for this? Cuz this is a pain in the ass and I'm just like, right? Well, you can do that if you want to, but The web has so many advantages, so much easier in terms of distribution, so much easier in terms of not having to reinstall the damn thing every five minutes whenever there's an update, so much less in terms of weight of um, files to get down the pipe to the users. There's so many reasons why the web is a great thing, Um, you know depending on which you, what use case it might not be the best but you know it's good for so many use cases and it's getting better and better so yeah <laughs> not, yeah um it does it, it it winds me up the number of courses you see that just teach you how to do great applications but with terrible semantics and no thought at all to that side of things but you know mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of it's turning web development into an, a sort of very it's almost bringing it back towards being a computer science discipline where whereas really it isn't that it's so much more than that, and that's why I find the web more interesting than something like you know developing c plus plus apps because it's like well, you've got this mixture of coding and design and psychology and all sorts of different things that you have to yep. bring into this big melting pot of skills to produce something that's great for your users, and it just makes. Just makes life more interesting.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, that is that's the one reason why moving from being a musician to being a web developer was not as painful because I didn't feel I left so that much on the table. Um, I still have a way to express myself um, in creative ways um, with the web because it it is this amalgamation of many different things it's you know it's not it's not just a science it's an art as well
1: absolutely
0: so i have two questions remaining and um the one is light-hearted and the other one is really also but it's also a little philosoph- philosophical There we go i got it right um so first one <laughs> um tough one but um what is your top three artists and favorite album? And maybe it doesn't have to be old time. Maybe it can be in the last two years or maybe it is old time.
1: That, that's a really hard question. It's one of those questions that every time I get asked it, I come up with a completely different answer because I listen to so much music. I'm completely and utterly obsessed with music Uh in a really quite some people would say unnatural way uh, my wife certainly <laughs> seems to think so um although i'm getting one of my daughters to be similarly obsessed with music which i'm quite proud of um so for those of you listening that don't know me i'm completely obsessed by horrible noisy music so heavy metal hardcore punk um but i also like a whole bunch of other stuff i'm pretty much into anything that has a bit of soul and a bit of passion and isn't just soulless manufactured disposable yeah. chart crap. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what have I, what have I been listening to recently? Um, I'm just trying to think. So my, my favorite horrible noisy band currently is uh, a US band called full of hell who play really horrible kind of punk grindcore death metal type stuff. Um, interesting set of imagery and artwork um some of their lyrical content seems to be quite philosophical and interesting it's not just that kind of metal stereotype of gore and guts and horror movie type stuff you know which is not the kind of thing that i'm really that into anyway but yeah i'd certainly recommend full of hell um one of my all-time favorite bands is uh converge again us-based kind of Another band that sort of straddles the line between punk and metal. Um, They started off by uh, playing what I think they themselves described as Slayercore, which was really punk but with Slayer riffs. Um, Interesting. And uh, they progressed into something a lot more interesting from there. So, yes, Converge are very good. I, I saw them recently at the Damnation Festival in the UK, along with Full of Hell as well um but yeah huh. converge played the whole of their classic album Jane Doe which is really 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 good um so yeah that's great um what else in terms of uh less metal stuff um i quite like a lot of dance music um but again not kind of charty commercial dance music i quite like breakbeat and glitch and that kind of stuff so i really like aphex twin so great artist from the UK that's been doing weird glitchy stuff for a long long time um also really like square pusher which is also in the same kind of vein um and there's a there's a fairly famous UK band called orbital who do lots of really really great dance stuff um in a way i sometimes find dance music easier to code to than really noisy metal stuff you know something that's just like a a solid beat and a bit of an ambience in the background that you can really get into um another mm-hmm. one of my favorite mm-hmm. bands another one of my favorite bands is the osric tentacles who are another uk band that play kind of like a mixture of dance music and prog rock and kind of weird kind of ethnic instruments and things they're really cool they're quite a special band for me because i actually met my wife as an osric tentacles gig um And uh, I'm going to go and see them this weekend, playing Manchester, uh, along with another one of my favourite bands, who are Gong. I don't know if you've heard of Gong, G-O-N-G, but they're a... uh, No. They were originally like an English-slash-French band that started in the late 60s, and they sort of invented ambient music before it was really a thing. Um, Oh, interesting. So, yeah, they play another sort of strange mix of... (coughs) excuse me, a mix of kind of ambient and prog and quite a lot of silly whale noises and flutes and saxophones as well. So I'd suggest them. And then, again, this list could go on forever, but probably (laughs) my favourite band of all time, at least my favourite band of all time this week, is uh, another UK band called The Cardiacs, who play a mix of kind of a mix of prog and punk, so a lot of their stuff sounds a bit aggro and punk, but they're also really, really, really impressively technical musicians who play really complex time structures and things, but it sounds really quite punk. Um, mm-hmm, they're not really mm-hmm. around so much anymore. Sadly, sadly, their frontman and main creative force, uh, Tim Smith, died a couple of years ago after battling oh. a long-standing illness. But mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. their music certainly li- lives on. It's a it's another one of those bands that kind of no one's ever heard of them and they certainly didn't have any great commercial success but whenever they used to play a gig they could fill out like a few thousand person arena you know they were like you know a massive massively popular band but really underground at the same time so yeah that's a little bit of a a uh, little bit of a snapshot into what i've been listening to recently
0: what cool. about yourself, yeah, man? A couple of things I'm going to check out. Yeah, I've been getting into Ginger a lot. Like, not Ginger, like J I N J E R. Um, the musicianship in that band is just unbelievable. Like, the drummer, the, the guitarist, the bassist is so, the stuff he does is mind blowing. And then the lead vocalist, she is something else she goes from high to growls that you can't imagine um is possible um I've oh, really yeah. been digging I've been digging them quite a lot. And then I learned they're from Ukraine as well and so I've been following them throughout the war and I'm thankful that they are all okay and safe and all that kind of stuff. But they've been sharing some stuff on their YouTube channel. So I've re- I've really gotten into them, I I have to say. And there's like another band that's kinda similar called Spirit Box. It's also a female um lead that also goes from melodic to full on growl and again the musicianship is just amazing Um, and some uh, instrumental stuff like um, Animals as Leaders, some of these people that play these um, 8-string electric guitars, it's just like mother it's so impressive and yeah yeah so a bunch of like stuff like that i've been getting really into but then i've been getting back into some old good old things like entombed landerstein album and some of the old sepultura and stuff like that just the rhythmic stuff in that just gets me every time i'm a sucker for a good
1: rhythm oh big time (laughs) yeah no it's absolutely fantastic no i mean i I've got uh Sepultura's Beneath the Remains album on vinyl and uh, I put that on the other day, like something I hadn't yeah. listened to it for a while, but it's a it's a super, super brilliant you know, anybody that likes Thrash, it's just a brilliant album. It it's is, really more it is. kind of thrash death, but it's 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 absolutely mm-hmm. superb. It, um yeah. if you're it sounds like you're getting quite into a bunch of kind of you know interesting female-fronted metal bands, and uh, I I also mm-hmm. really like Ginger. I think they're really really impressive, really really good stuff. But there's a there's a UK band called Rolo Tomassi, who are also like a a metal band, but with a female vocalist, and she also does like really good melodic, singy stuff as well as growling. Uh, they're mm-hmm. really great. Mm-hmm. They they they, they also go into a lot of really weird, disturbingly strange kind of sort of techie screamo prog crazy stuff. Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're really, really great. Yeah, I'll definitely check them out. So in closing,
0: what are your hopes for the future? And now from two perspectives, one for tech and then on a more philosophical perspective for the world.
1: Crikey, that is a big question. <laughs> um i think i could probably sum it up in four in in six words um better climate less war less fascism Those you know we could things. we could get into that a bit more i'm a i'm i am ai am i am very much uh, quite seriously committed to environmentalism so my my wife and mm-hmm. i have done quite a bit of activism with uh, um various groups um Not just Stop Oil, but we did do a bunch of stuff with Extinction Rebellion. We've been to quite a lot of protests and done quite a lot of activism activity with them. Uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, that's the key to everything, really, is the whole environmental catastrophe that the world is facing. Because, you know, if we don't have a planet to live on anymore, everything (laughs) else we could possibly discuss is just completely and utterly null and void. There's not even really, it's not really worth talking about. Um, Yeah. Of course one big issue with that i you know i can say that but at the same time another problem that you tend to get is that a lot of the issues affecting tackling the climate catastrophe so climate change denial all of that kind of stuff tends to be um tends to be connected to uh fascism as well unfortunately there's a lot mm-hmm. of fascist politicians mm-hmm. out there that really, really mm-hmm. don't care about environmental issues. They think it's all a hoax. They think it's all a load of rubbish made up by yep. woke lefties like me to try and steal a piece of their pie. Um, but really, <laughs> that just goes into the whole selfish outlook that those folks, unfortunately, often tend to harbour. Um, yep. So yeah, uh, that's that's one great big hairy deal. And of course, that also tends to create injustice, and it tends to create um, people getting at loggerheads of each other, which, of course, somewhere further down the line leads to war. So really, these things are all interconnected. They are. Um, But yeah, I'm just really, really hoping that we can get a bunch more people thinking about doing things to help the climate catastrophe. You know, it seems clear Mm -hmm. to me that the governments of this world Again, like we talked, like like something similar to what we mentioned earlier, they like to talk a lot about this, but they don't seem to really like to do very much about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what we need is for everybody to start helping out with uh, the environmental catastrophe just by doing small things and helping out doing anything they can.
0: yeah. I 100 agree, and I think one of the key things is I I heard about this thing that they've they've learned, and I I think it's in Taiwan where they've done some research, and so to drown out negativity, for each one negative, you have to have ten positive. So I think we need to, as 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 a species, as the human race, we need to drown out this because I do think it's a vocal minority. I've been in so many circumstances where you think that oh, so many people are against this thing or for this other thing, but then when you really dig into it, you find out no, it's actually a very vocal minority. And if the, all the rest of the people stop standing by and just looking at it and start speaking up, just it we can drown them out very quickly. And I think a lot of people are not really aware of the fact that this is no small thing it's nothing else is important if we don't have a place to live uh, essentially so this this should be like the way that people that that everybody in the world came together to battle COVID. we need that for climate change climate yep. crisis
1: yep absolutely agree man
0: well, thanks so much, Chris. This was wonderful. Um, I was looking forward to this conversation. I'm glad we could make it happen, even though I'm it's low shedding over here and uh, it's late in the evening for both of us. But um I'm really grateful that you made some time to speak with me. And um, I wish you all the best with Mill Stocks. I know it's going to be a huge success, and I look forward to to seeing the business grow.
1: Well, cheers, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's been great to chat to you, Skalk, and I'll. Uh... I'll talk to you again soon.
0: Yeah, have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mycelium Network Podcast. If you're not already, please subscribe, store, and leave a review for us in your podcatcher of choice. This helps others find us and helps us make a better podcast for you, our listeners. You can also find and follow us on Twitter at Network Mycena and join the community on Discord. All the links are available in the show notes.